Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 18th, 2013, and my guest is Lant Pritchett of Harvard University. His latest book is The Rebirth of Education, Schooling Ain't Learning. Lant, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much. Your book is about the state of learning uh, around the world and how students are treated around the world. I want to start with the distinction that runs through the book between spider systems and starfish systems. What do you have in mind with those terms? Well, it's terms I picked up from a couple of business consultants that had talked about the way organizations work, but I've expanded it to the way systems work. And the basic distinction is between a top-down organization where the metaphor of a spider is – All of the resources of the spider web, however spread out they are, merely serve to transmit information to one spider who synthesizes that information and responds with the resources of the system. So if there's a bug, the spider crawls out and gets it. But kind of all the web is merely an ancillary to, you know, the brains at the top. A starfish is a creature that actually has no brain. Uh, It has – it's neurally interconnected. But a starfish moves because the individual units of the starfish, the little tentacles, sense something. And if they sense more food, they try and pull that way. And if the other side isn't pulling as hard, the starfish moves. So it's really a a metaphor of a decentralized system where individual units responding to local conditions create the properties of the system. And the beauty of a starfish is uh, if you cut a starfish up into five bits, you get five starfish. Um, The danger of a spider is when the spider dies, it's dead. The whole system, therefore, uh, falls into dysfunction. But that's not the only problem with the spider system. The spider (laughs) system has some limitations uh, because it depends on who the spider is. That's that's true. Um, Now, one thing – that said, the spider systems do do some things well. And interestingly, in the history of schooling – Spider things have done two things that have been overlapped, and most people paid attention to only one. One thing spider systems do well is they do logistics really well. If you really don't need anybody at the local level to think but just implement, say you want to build 100,000, you know, 10,000 identical schools all over the islands of Indonesia, then designing a program that dictates exactly the design of the school, exactly the amount of concrete to be used, exactly – Um, everything about it, and then just relying on the local to implement works well. And that's one of the things I point out in my book is the expansion of schooling is really one of the triumphs of our time, and it was carried out mostly logistically. But as you're hinting, the second thing a spider does well is control what goes on in the schools, which governments have sought control of the socialization of children – And in some sense, the only model they really had for controlling the socialization of children was a very spider-like system in which all of this, you know, all the key decisions got forced to a higher and higher level in order to provide the the control that newly nationalizing states and others felt they wanted. Now, before we get into the ideas in the book, uh, Mm. which is a fabulous book, by the way, it's extremely uh, written with extreme. 
with a lot of style. It's a lot of fun. You, you learn a great deal about education, and uh, I, I love your perspective. But before we get into that, talk mm. for two minutes about your own personal experiences. What are the, Besides the research that you draw on, what are your personal experiences in the schools and educational systems in the developing world? Well, I worked for many years for the World Bank, and uh, one of the things I did is I often worked as an educational economist, which uh, we would come in and start analyzing education budgets. But in the process of analyzing the budget and how to allocate the budget, I started to visit schools. And as I started to visit schools, I realized that what was actually going on in the classrooms bore almost no relationship to what you might think of as what should go on in the classroom. So uh, I visited schools in uh, India in uh, 95 and found that uh, nearly all the teachers in the schools weren't actually the people hired to be in the schools. They were all subcontractors, um, meaning the wage of the teacher was so much higher than the wage it really took to put someone in the classroom. Politically connected individuals would get the job. And then they would basically subcontract out the job to others. Um, I went into schools in Egypt and in Egypt where there's a very high stakes test in secondary school. What I found even literally right in front of us, what the teachers would do during the day is it was a lost leader for their nighttime business of tutoring students for the exam. So in the classroom, they would say, in order to pass the exam, you'll need to know the following material. <laughs> But not actually teach it. It was a marketing, it was a marketing <laughs> session. It was a marketing device for their much more lucrative night job, which was you know individual or group tutoring lessons on the material they actually would need to cover um, for the exam. Uh, the more I went into schools, the more I realized that there was a reality of what was going on in the schools that uh, – in spite of or you know <laughs> all the enthusiasm for getting every kid into school, I got more and more concerned that the kind of overall pressure of the movement to get every kid into school was ignoring actually what was going on once they arrived there, and that the that the you know what was going on in the schools um, really wasn't what we thought was going on, and it was really this this this. This is the opposite of many academic things. This wasn't that I took an academic agenda and extended it in some way. This arose from my actual on-the-ground experiences, visiting schools, visiting classrooms, and realizing, well, this isn't at all what you know economists are talking about when they talk about the economics of education. So let me read two quotes uh, from the book that reinforce your point about the increase in schooling. These, mm. are, these are rather extraordinary and dramatic, and uh, mm. I think most people aren't aware of this. Schooling in – this is a quote. Schooling in poor countries has expanded so rapidly that the average Haitian or Bangladeshi had more years of schooling in 2010 than the average Frenchman or Italian had in 1960. That's number one. Number two, the population of labor force age in the developing world has now completed three times more years of schooling than in 1950. When 60% of the labor force age population had no schooling at all. So there's been a tripling of education. It's at very high levels, but it hasn't increased the knowledge of these students. So talk about how we know that. Besides your personal experience of being in classrooms mm. where nothing happened, what are some right. of the international measures you cite in the book right. that, uh, depressing as they are, that, that show how little progress is being made in poor countries? Yeah, I, I – 
just presented this book at a seminar here at Harvard a while ago, and I had a someone who was uh, my discussant on the book, and he prefaced his remarks by saying, any of you who have seasonal mood disorder should read this book now, because um, the statistics are, in fact, very depressing. And one of the important points is it's taken a long time for this issue to surface, surface in the sense that there's all kinds of statistics kept track of how many kids in school, of what gender, of what age, of what grade progression. But trying to come to the numbers of exactly what we wanted to get out of that, the education kids had, is very hard to come by. It's, there are no internationally reliable and comparable statistics uh, on what kids know. And so kind of the effort of this book, which was considerable, was to try and piece together what we know. Um, and I and I want to start with not the international and comparable stuff, but, you know, there was a group uh, in India that during my time living in India, I got to know and, and support uh, called Pratham, which has launched this initiative to instead of relying on spell school-based it. exams. Spell it, Lan. Uh, P-R-A-T-H-A-M, Pratham. And they and they have this exam this A S E E R ASER, which is the annual status of education or something like that. Anyway, but they they actually went to villages directly, and because what they realized is a lot of the stuff on learning that was coming out of schools was either falsified or it was just giving students rote repetition back, kind of what they had just heard, and so it was overstating what they actually understood, and so they went directly to villages. And what they found was just really shocking that, you know, kids completing the primary school of grade five, um, you know, lots of them, you know, a substantial portion uh, couldn't read any words at all. Um, And most of them could not read what was regarded as a simple, you know, grade two story, which meant if they had reached grade five and didn't know that, it was just how were they learning anything at all? It was just shocking. So in the book, I put together statistics from, you know, direct tests of kids in their homes and villages that have now been carried out in other countries, some, and then the internationally comparable things. And what you find is that, is that they're just unbelievably behind, unbelievably behind in the sense that if you took the tip, you know, if you compare the PISA, which is the program for international student assessment, which is run by the OECD, only after you know a decade or more of, of effort did India agree to have any of its states participate at all, and they sort of encouraged two of their higher-performing states to participate. But the average score would put the typical Indian child uh, in the you know bottom two percent of an American classroom. I mean, it's just, you know, it just unbelievably large difference. Tell, and, the, tell the story of the headmaster when confronted uh, <laughs> in the town. Tell, set that yeah. stage of what happened because it's yeah. really informative of the part of the problem. Yeah, and uh, so so one of the things is that the system, the, these education systems that were set up to be spider systems and have been driven by the logistical targets of expansion enrollment have in some sense by design been – insouciant with respect to being accountable to parents. So I went to a village meeting in which Pratham had tested kids and they held a village meeting in which the, you know, the, the villagers showed up and there was a meeting with the villagers, the Pratham representatives who sort of explicated the results. The headmaster was there and the local village chief was there. And, uh, you know, 
and the parents by this time knew kind of what the results would be because they'd been testing all week in the household, but they present the results and they begin to discuss and a guy about my age stands up and, you know, says just point blank, in a you know, in front of a hundred or so people, um, that you've you've betrayed us. You told us that if we sent our kids to school, they'd have a different life than we have. And I've worked like a donkey my whole life. And now my child, uh, you know, I've sent my child, kept him home from the field, sent him to school like you told me to. And now I learn he can't read and it's too late and he's going to end up a donkey just like me. <laughs> it was really one of the, I mean, it's being an incredibly work, sad story. It, it was an it incredibly makes me sad cry. story. I mean, <laughs> I, it, it does. I mean, it really. I mean, I have to say, being a development worker, you're constantly confronted with the injustice of the world and how hard people's lives are. But to have this guy so poignantly express that not only had his his hopes been dashed, which he had reconciled himself to, but that his child's hopes had been dashed, was really one of the most poignant experiences I've I've had in my career. You know, in my <laughs> in 30 years as a development person. Um, but it gets worse. <laughs> yeah, but then it gets worse because hubbub, you know, shouting, agreement, da da da. And some minutes later, they finally turn to the headmaster to respond to this, and he begins by saying, "And all this is in translation, so I'm not sure I got it pretty right, but I'm pretty sure I got the gist of it." Was, "You're right. You're a donkey, and since you're a donkey, your kids are donkeys. Your kids come to stu- school stupid, and what are we supposed to do? We can't do anything with them. They're not learning because they're stupid kids." And end of you know end of discussion. That was that was his sense of providing an account of what his school was doing to try and educate these children was that it was beyond his control because the kids were doomed by uh, their parentage to uh, low performance. And it was just the most unbelievably brusque and imperious response I had ever seen. Um, But it wasn't, in fact, a typical of the just casual uh, insouciance with which uh, many, many, many not all, obviously, but many, many, many teachers and administrators in the education system treat the parents. And how is that possible? So how is it that a, that a, a principal or a headmaster in a – we're mainly going to be talking about the, the poor parts of the world, but at the end of our conversation, yeah. we'll, we'll get a little yeah. bit to America. Yeah. Uh, how is it that in a poor country like that where there are really pitiful – as you say, there's, there's incredibly tragic things going on. People have hard lives. They make these sacrifices. How can this system, this spider system of top-down, total non-performance, how does it persist? Um, I think it – well, one of the conjectures I put in the book is that it persists in partly by camouflage. It pretends to be something it's not and then can project enough of the camouflage that it maintains its legitimacy. So – um, sociologists of organization have a term called isomorphic mimicry, which is adapted from evolution where, you know, some species of snakes look poisonous but aren't, but get the survival value of looking poisonous. So one of the things that's happened is by this pressure to expand schooling and by the government's desire to control that socialization process, they've created all the appearances of schools that provide education but without actually doing it. But have at the same time not produced the information that would make it clear that they weren't doing it. So they produce enrollment statistics, they produce numbers of buildings, numbers of toilets, numbers of textbooks, numbers of everything, but have, you know, all of which can project the image that there's a a functional system in providing real learning there, 
but they don't provide metrics of learning or incentives for learning or feedback on learning or accountability for learning at all, and so can per- persist in this kind of, you know, <laughs> what, what I've called elsewhere a technique of persistent failure. You know, if you came and said, how could I fail and yet never have anybody hold me accountable to failure, you would design very something but you would design something very much like many of the current education systems. But of course, in many other parts of the of our lives, that kind of behavior doesn't work. So if I, right. for example, order a, a shirt from, <laughs> yeah. uh, say, Land's End, and it <laughs> right. comes with one sleeve, and the chest is, yeah. is not the size I ordered, and uh, the that's, material that's, of one part of the shirt's a different part than the other, and I call Lance and I say, the shirt doesn't fit. They don't say, well, you have a funny body. Of course it doesn't fit. It's your fault. That's number yeah. one. Number two, right. I stop ordering from them. Uh, after right. a while, I might give them right. one chance, but after right. a while I say, uh, this is unacceptable. I'm going to order for somewhere else. And as a result, that competitive pressure works pretty well. You know, right. Occasionally there are mistakes. Things are imperfect, but remarkable level of customer service in the West for those kind of things. Why is it that that school system, that headmaster? Well, first of all, why wasn't he torn limb from limb? Um, <laughs> literally, I mean, it's, it'd be extraordinary to keep your cool in that situation. But number two, what keeps that camouflage? And let's say you don't have a kid, right? So you don't see the system day to day, and you see the statistics. Right. It looks pretty good, right? But for like, the people with the right. kids in the school, there's no voice, evidently. So what's going wrong there? Besides the obvious that it's a monopoly system run by a government that's corrupt, but you know, why does that persist? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't. But uh, wow, that, that's a hard question when you said beyond the obvious. Yeah. Well, you, you um, can repeat the obvious. It's okay. <laughs> uh, so here, here though, you're 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 headed towards um, one of the very tricky issues which uh, I raise in the book. Um, which is, I think, been a failure of economics to be clear about this point has led the economists to be much less influential in this space than they otherwise could have been. Which is, if you, you know, the case for sort of choice and competition in schools provided in which the role of the government that wants to promote education could be a simple student money follows the student uh, financing, or you know, one could say voucher system. You know, Milton Friedman made that case very articulately in you know his 1962. Was it 1962? Capitalism yeah, and freedom. Capitalism and freedom. 1962. So you know, more than 50 years ago, and not clear to me that that his are you know I went back and read it not too long ago, and it's pretty articulate and pretty makes the same cogent points. But the one thing we ignore. In this is a, uh, a a tricky phrase, but I think it's a phrase that's important to to think about when we think about the economics of schooling. Is that socialization is not third party contractible? And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is you don't you know you don't you don't give if 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 you want your kid to grow up religious, you don't give your kid a voucher and send him off on Sunday morning to hire who teaches him Sunday school. You actually you know. Take him to the denomination of your choice and put him in a Sunday school run by people who believe in that denomination um, because, you know, there's always the risk that if I if I give you a voucher, let's say I'm a, you know, government that believes in secularism and I give you a voucher to go off and educate your kid, 
you can easily take the voucher, get your kid educated with all the demonstrable skills of reading and writing, but at the same time socialize him in some religious views that the secular government may not want children to have. And that control of socialization is what has led these systems to persist. So although and, – and governments really can't have it both ways. You really can't just give people vouchers or let them have choice over how they educate their kids and not have them educate their kids how they want their kids to be educated, which will include that they want their kids to be socialized in ways that governments often disagree with. Um, religious parents actually want their children to be socialized into religious values and uh, – you know, um, and that, you know, parents of ethnicities actually want their children to be socialized into pride in their own ethnicity or their own subnational affiliation in ways that national governments often, you know, don't want them to be. And this is really, in my mind, at the heart of the issue. And I don't think economists have been very articulate in addressing that particular issue. Well, it raises two points. One of which. Yep. Um, well, I may well just mention in passing, which is the so-called uh, case for government schooling, which is that schooling education is a public good, and right, that's right. nice. Which on it's the, not. It's, it's not, not, and and it's nice. But even if it is, it's nice on a on a blackboard. Right. But in practice, <laughs> is what counts. And right. In, exactly. If this, if the government does a horrible job, it's a it's a bad argument. Economists should stop making it. But, right. But the other point you raise, this idea of socialization, and and you use this in the book to describe. Why it is that governments are involved not just in financing education, right. which would be one case that an economist might make, but for providing it through government schools, right. you, you make this argument of socialization. And the question is, well, if you're going to do the socialization, why wouldn't you at least deliver decent <laughs> skills along the way? Well, they're, they're not – they don't contradict each other. In theory, there's some no, trade-off no. between teaching people right. how great Mao is or Stalin or, or whoever right. – and right. teaching them reading and writing, but but there's nothing going on in these classrooms. It's not just that they're devoting too much time to the, the great Fuhrer, the great whatever. There's they're not teaching them how to read and write. Are you suggesting that's part of the socialization that they want stupid people who are unproductive? Um, I am. Yeah, I'm coming pretty close to that sometimes. And let me <laughs> let me tiptoe up to that a couple of in, in a couple of different. I, I think there are kind of. That's a great question, and it raises three different responses, right? One response is is that I actually think there is a trade-off. I really do think you can't both have a system that's exclusively top-up accountable and, in fact, run a good system unless you're willing to put super high stakes on the students. So if you look at the high-performing East Asian countries that have, you know, great scores on these PISA like comparable things like Korea and Singapore, right? The way they do it is not necessarily by having good government schools. They do it by saying, by the way, when you turn age 16 or 17, you're going to take a life chances determining examination and, you know, the few that do well on this examination will go on to university and become the elite and those that fail won't. And hence you get, you know, kids in Korea in the 70s and 80s studying literally 16 hours a day in which most of their education process is controlled by tutors uh and so so you know co- to conclude that because kids Korean kids do well on the PISA that the Korean education system is the the Korean public education is good is just not on, right? So so meaning I I'm just getting back to the accountability issue. If you 
because you don't want the parents to control the behavior of the teacher with regard to socialization, cut off the line of accountability from the bottom up, you there really is this trade-off. It really is that much harder to run a, t a system when you've cut off the major channel of knowing what's going on, right? Because so you'd the, have to have – Because treating the parent or the child as the customer. Exactly, as, as opposed to a system that really has bottom-up accountability where you treat them like a client or a customer or, or a responsive thing. Um, and, and, you know, that tension is there and it is a trade-off. It is a trade-off. You, you lose something by not by, – by creating a system – in which teachers are understand that they are only accountable upwards, that is, they're hired by the state or the na nation state and assigned to a village where they have no roots, no connection, no responsibilities, you really do lose most of the information about that person's performance with regard to how you judge or manage your teachers. So you're managing teachers on this very thin information set of what they are or what they're doing, and that is a huge trade-off. It's a cost. It's a huge cost to the ideological control that hasn't been sufficiently acknowledged in my view. So so, so I think your premise that there isn't necessarily any trade-off, you could maintain the socialization and run good schools, I think is not – I don't think that's true. Uh, I don't think that's true. It, it's, it's much harder to do it that way because like you say, you've, you know, imagine trying to run a um, – uh, you know, imagine trying to run a series of restaurants in which you want, you know, customers to be happy but in which you get no feedback from customers. That's going to be really hard for you, you know, sitting in the headquarters of Oak Park, Illinois, running, you know, McDonald's franchises where you're completely disassociated from any information from the customer, including from their purchase decisions about how well your franchises are doing. McDonald's would have a hard, much harder time making its uh, individual um, franchisees uh, run good restaurants. So, so I, I think that's before a huge you go on, right up. Yeah. yeah, before you okay. go on, I, so, I just want to – say to the to, to our listeners that we're 25 minutes or so into this uh, conversation and, and I haven't mentioned Hayek yet but I will mention him now which uh, <laughs> Please do. which is this is an obvious example of how yeah. markets coordinate knowledge through prices when you cut off all those signals obviously you've got a challenge that's going to have to be yep. if you wanted to meet it you have to recreate it through artificial measures that don't work very well and work and work and work and work less and less well for some things than other things. So again, coming back to the spider systems, you know, if what you're trying to do really is just logistics, then the loss of information from the bottom up isn't that serious. You really can run a top-down system that's just delivering individual uniform things, um, which I think was the lesson of communism. As long as the communism was just trying to do super centralized things, it didn't fare – well, it fared terrible on human rights and on freedom, but it didn't fare so well – it didn't fare so badly uh, economically. But when it got into anything that required subtlety or quality or you know, detailed interaction or adapting to the customer or, or person's needs, they did m much, much less well. Uh, and I think that's the same lesson we're seeing here, which is teaching kids is a very – De, you know, detailed, dense set of thick personal interactions between students and teachers day in and day out. And the idea that you can ignore all of that information and still run an effective schooling system, you know, thought about very deeply was, was kind of a false idea. But this is where the schooling agenda masked 
the learning agenda. As long as the schooling agenda was a logistical agenda of getting every kid into school and pushing them from grade to grade, then you could imagine that you could run a schooling system because you weren't losing any information. All the information I needed to know was, is every kid in school? Um, but a learning agenda, there's just the Hayek point becomes enormously, you know, orders of magnitude more important because you now have all these subtle and important interpersonal interactions that that you, like I say, you're, you're tossing away all of that feedback loop by cutting parents out of the accountability loop. Now, I interrupted you. You, you were going to give Please. a couple of other explanations for oh, the phenomenon. Oh, I think you should ask a new question because okay. now I don't, I don't remember what <laughs> I was going to say. Sorry. The I, cost. I was going to say, though, that one of the – sorry, the second response was I, I do think this – you made a very important point about the rationale for – you know, I think economists have been incredibly sloppy – about their both their language and their analysis in terms of the rationale for public intervention. Um, you know, Mark Blog wrote a review of the economics of education in 1975, in which he concluded that whereas we had an enormous amount of economics of education of the demand side, you know, what how much schooling individuals would choose and why, and rates of return to schooling, that nothing about the positive theory of why governments do what they do in schooling had any good economic explanation. So as you point out, any externality or market failure rationale for government intervention doesn't justify the government control of the production. It, it, you know, it always analytically justifies government financing of provision, but, but there's never been a good economic, positive economic theory of the government control of the production of schooling. And Mark Blog has that sentence almost exactly in 1975, and it's still true, probably still will be true in 2015. We've just ignored that and kind of, you know, elided the distinction between, well, there's some positive externalities to schooling, therefore the government, national governments hire teachers and assign them to each individual right. classroom. The, the leap between those two things and and the the logical and theoretical disconnect has not been sufficiently, uh, I think, emphasized. Now, most school reformers, no matter what country they're in, uh, yep. especially here in the United States, but I'm sure it's true elsewhere too. They look at <laughs> we're going to disagree about the United States, I suspect, when we yeah, come to we'll it. See. But let's, not let's so see. sure. We'll, we'll see. see. Okay. <laughs> uh, so most school reformers look at the external uh, trappings. Of mm -hmm. the school system, mm -hmm. uh, and they try to improve particular measures. They'll look at right. class size, technology, right. teacher right. quality, education of the teacher, right. textbooks. So why is it so hard for a spider-based system to mimic – you say they mimic the camouflage. Mm -hmm. why, don't, why do we get no bang for the buck when we say in a poor school or in a poor country – Reduce class size, add technology, et cetera. Mm. On the surface, that would seem to be putting heading in the right direction. And I, I don't dispute that it's headed in the right direction. It's and 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 this is enters a large and contentious empirical literature that I think again has been misframed. Um, so what I want to say though is is that if you if you look at uh, where, say, even a upper middle income country like Brazil is relative to the U.S., right? They're about 100 points behind on these standard exams that make a student standard deviation 100 points. So just think of them as being 100 points behind on a 500 scale. Um, 
you know, that's, in that's the a book, big I, amount. That's I, a big amount. A huge amount, right? I mean, it's I don't know how to explain it to the listeners, but it's a student standard deviation, which means a hundred points takes you from the median child to the sixteenth percentile child, or from the median, you know. So it it you know it's the difference between having a decent education and having a terrible education, roughly. Um, so they're a hundred points behind. Then if you say, okay, I, I'll give you your input fantasy, you know, take all of those things you're talking about in terms of what I call thin inputs, things that a spider system could measure and do. I'll give you the cl low class size you want. I'll give you, you know, textbooks to every child. I'll give you, you know, the maximum amount the empirical evidence says that would give you at existing levels of the efficacy with which those inputs are used in current systems is about 10 points. So, you know, I, I'm not claiming it's zero. I'm not claiming it's not the right direction, but I'm claiming to act as if those those input-based things could exclusively erase anything like the gaps we see is just not on. There's no empirical evidence anywhere um, that from the that from the micro up you could build a top-down input-based plan that would deliver anything like the different the quality of education. Uh, parents in, in poor countries want. And and by the way, that that's the optimistic case that you're 100 points behind and would make up 10. In the African countries or in India, they're 200 points behind and would still only make up 10. <laughs> and this would, you know, and this would require huge fiscal resources, huge planning, everything else, and could easily be the the people's agenda of the next decade is, oh, we just need to focus on these inputs. But it's just, it's just not you know, I don't have to claim that it's going to deliver zero or that it's not in the right direction or isn't kind of some complement to other things that are happen, but to act as if it's the only thing that will need to happen, it, there's just no evidence for it at all. So I, I'm going to read another quote from the book, okay. um, which I thought kind of summed this up really elo eloquently <clears throat> and applies to lots of other things that uh, economists study. <clears throat> quote, in many physical sciences, there are hard physical facts like the mass of a proton or a neutron. We know that if one atom has exactly one more proton than another atom, its mass is higher by exactly that amount in Kenya, India, or Tennessee. But everything important about education involves human beings as students, as teachers, as parents, as principals, and human beings are not reducible to physical facts because they have hopes, fears, identities, likes, tastes, motivations. Human beings choose – Therefore, the impact of learning from adding a teacher to a classroom is not a fixed quantity like proton mass, but rather is determined by the behavior of people. Studies measuring the impact of interventions such as lowering class size or adding resources or increasing teacher salaries do not reveal the impact of class size. They reveal there is no such thing as the impact of class size. End of quote. You want to say anything else about that? I love that quote. I um, so do I. I, I, I. You know, the thing about writing a book is, by the time it actually comes out, you forget some of the things you wrote. I, I, I think this is very important because you know one of the currently fashionable things in my field of development economics is to use randomized control techniques or RCTs to examine kind of input and output relationships. And I think, uh, I, I think again, while that might be in the right direction and might be a contribute some modest amount. Uh, I worry that it feeds into the sort of uh, input fantasy of the spider systems, that if we just discovered through an RCT what the right combination of inputs is, that would solve our problem. And I think it ignores the much deeper system 
and you know accountability and motivation problems that exist in these systems and the existing literature to date hasn't been very optimistic frankly that you know acting as if we're going to do an experiment there and learn something and then uh replicate that is going to get us again it's not you know i i don't i don't have to claim nothing about my argument depends on our claiming that it has no impact but there's no evidence to date that it's going to have anything like the kinds of impact we would be hoping for um you know cuz these countries are on on track if you if you look at cuz one of the things again i i i want to come back to and I emphasize in the book is that it's not as if people haven't been pursuing these expansion of inputs and in these studies but if we it's look it's not at, like an untried experiment exactly <laughs> Yeah, it's not like we haven't had kids in schools. And by the way, we haven't spent more money per pupil like crazy. Exactly. It's not as if, you know, we know expenditure per pupil in OECD countries has doubled or tripled in the last 30 years and but but with little but impact. The point is, is that if if we track kind of okay, you're 100 points behind, say, and again, that's the optimistic scenario, you know, how many points per year do you seem to be improving? Uh and the pace of progress is very very slow. So you know, in the typical case, uh, you know, the, the trend – and again, we don't have very many of these countries and there are all kinds of reasons why these not, might not be perfectly reliable numbers. But it seems to be between one and two points a year, which means if you're trying to make up 100 points, you know, you're only, it's going to take on average 100 years to do it at that pace. And about 40 percent of the countries, it seems to be no positive trend or going backwards which means, you know, when your kids say how long till we get there? Well, we're still backing out of the we're still going backwards. So, we're not we're heading into the garage. Progress. We're heading yeah. into the garage, not backing <laughs> right. out of the driveway. Yeah, we're not even backing out of the driveway yet. So, um so it is not as if the dynamic evidence suggests that we're on a positive trajectory yet either. Um in spite of, you know, having lots of time to have devoted to expansion of inputs. So, there's been Despite lots of changes and variation mm. among mm. Western countries and developed countries in spending and mm. class size, et cetera, mm. there has been little or no improvement in, in measured quality. Mm. Right. Could be it's been offset by other factors, of course. Doesn't mean it has no impact, but there's no yep. dramatic visible impact of these changes. Right. Now, whenever we talk about this on Econ Talk, and yep. uh, Rick Hanishek's been a guest, and he's yep. one of the people who's responsible for some of these conclusions in his yep. work. People say, well, what about Finland? Finland's yep. doing great. And Finland, I assume, has a spider-based system. They're top-down, not bottom-up. I'm sure the government plays a role in schooling in Finland. Yep, uh, I'm sure they do. And I think uh, they've allegedly done very well, and there have been books yep. written about how great they're doing. Yep. Uh, what have they done right, and is it replicable elsewhere? Do we have anything we can learn from Finland? Um, it depends on who's who's we, right? So, you know. I've been to Finland several times, uh, not in connection with education, but, um, you know, Finland has, uh, <laughs> um, well, basically, the, I'm, I'm, I'm being too coy here. No, the answer is no. There, there's <laughs> nothing India or Pakistan or Indonesia can learn from Finland. Finland is an extremely wealthy, quite homogeneous, already highly educated, Society that adopted a very sophisticated and, by the way, attempted to replicate, you know, individual student on student and more autonomy for teacher way. But, you know, the whole country is is barely the size of one 
Indian city. Um, it, so it's small, it's homogeneous, it's rich, it's already, it's super highly functional governance. Uh, you know, none of the preconditions that, none of, <laughs> uh, none of the preconditions, uh, that Finland have exist for any of the countries that I'm interested in talking about. So I would think we should assume to first order there's nothing useful that can be learned from Finland for countries that, you know, Finland has done a good job of going from kind of being at the OECD average of 500 to moving up from 500. We're talking about countries that are at 250, 320, 400. The idea that the same sets of things get you from 500 to 540 like Finland has done are the things that you need to get to get to a functional system of 500 I think is just – there's no reason to believe that's true. And any good ma- any good set of directions has to start from where you are to where you want to be. So I think if you said here's the instructions of what Finland did you know, over the last 15 years, you should ask yourself the question, am I Finland in 1990? And any reasonable developing countries would answer itself, no, I'm not anything like – Finland in 1990. I look a lot more like Finland in 1890. Uh, and hence, I should be thinking more about how Finland got to where it is than how Finland got to where it was in the last 10 or 15 years. What about what about the United States, though? What about countries that, have, that are struggling to improve educational performance? Uh, should the superintendent of schools of New York City, Washington, D.C., Chicago, yeah. Los Angeles, places that have tr- lots of troubles – should yeah. they go take a trip to Finland on on my dollar? By the way, should they take a trip to <laughs> on Finland? Your tax dollar? Yeah, should they take um, a trip to Finland and learn, I, learn I what think, they're doing well? I yeah, I don't I don't think that would hurt at all. Actually, I think uh, Finland has probably been doing interesting things, and I think considering what other countries have been doing uh, successfully is probably not a terrible thing. But my I, I'm hesitant to state my views on the United States because it's not the point of my book, but I actually think the U.S. I'm a bigger believer in the U.S. education system than many people are, and I tend to think that the United States has a social problem, not an education problem. So my meaning, I think uh, the way we've structured the other sentence in our schooling system, I think in the typical American affluent suburb, Parents are getting exactly the schooling they want for their children. I don't think there's that much problem in the American schooling system. And totally I totally agree. And I think to it's your very surprise. Hard, <laughs> I I think it's I think it's very hard to make the case that in a country in which, you know, the typical child spends between twenty six and forty hours a week on electronic medium, that the problem with our low educational performance is our schools. We just haven't created a situation in which parents are really willing to make the trade-off between school time and student effort and higher, you know, learning. Um, I'm, you know, we can debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, um, you know, my wife actually taught in the Bedford school system for five years. And that's in Massachusetts, I assume. Bedford, Massachusetts, a suburb just outside of, um, the beltway here. And I think the parents in Bedford got out of their school system exactly what they wanted out of it. And they wanted football teams and my wife teaches choir and they wanted choir and they wanted the school to put on a musical and they wanted the school, the, them to provide their children with a range of 
athletic and artistic experiences and engagement in a variety of other activities. And that's what the school system delivered because it was quite carefully and closely controlled both formally and informally by the parents. And that that produces kind of uh, not world-beating math scores. I don't think that's what the parents of Bedford thought was the totality of their educational system. So I'm a very big fan of the local control by parents of educational systems. And if that doesn't produce scores of 600, uh, I'm actually pretty happy with that because I've seen what it takes in Korea to produce scores of 600 and no American parents willing to put their kid through that, nor should they be in my view. I, I lived in Bedford in 1957. I was three. Is that right? I was three. Oh. Year, I was three years old. I missed your wife, but um, <laughs> I think By you're. Some years. Yeah, I think you're right. There's no doubt that in the <clears throat> affluent, successful suburbs of America, right? Not only do you get the sports in the choir, you get a pretty good math education too. I yeah. think you don't get a Korean level one, maybe, but as you say, I think most. Kids no, and, would and, rebel, and many parents don't want that. They do want their kids to get into a good college, though, and that you know, the, as yeah, the, they would want the kids into a good college, but um, but that that um, I mean, there's a large, complicated thing here, but 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 I think too much disparaging of the American system um doesn't get right. I mean. The, the marginal value of the out, of the various outputs of schooling, right? And what I mean by that is, uh, <clears throat> and so uh, what I mean by that is if your kids are actually coming out of high school with some pretty decent, you know, they can read their textbooks, they can understand their textbooks, they can understand the mathematics, they're coming out with a reasonably adequate basis for further education, then thinking, I also want them during their, these years to explore other facets of life and learn other things about life, like working together with teams through athletic experiences or choirs, or I want them to explore other things that will be value to them later in life, like uh, appreciation of the arts. Yep. Um, now, if we say, so so here's my – I have this argument which is – I call my the, – the pimp your ride argument, okay? The pimp your ride argument says if you buy a car and the car comes as a bundle of characteristics with a given sound system and a given horsepower and a given – you can always top up those characteristics individually, right? You can buy a better stereo system or you can buy fancier tires or you can do lots of things. And you reveal by what you spend at the margin where you thought what where the bundle was inadequate, right? Yep. So if you look at American parents, they get a bundle of educational experiences for their children out of the school system, right? And then you say, well, in what ways do parents spend their own money to supplement their child's overall education? Well, I think they spend it a lot on additional sport Sports experiences, right? Additional musical experiences. They teach, they have their kids take private music lessons. And I would think among, again, in affluent suburbs, the ratio of parents spending, uh, the ratio of kids engaged in some non-academic activity versus academic tutoring is probably on the order of 10 to 1. Well, they also, they don't just spend their money. They spend their time. They exactly. spend time with their student, with their kids throwing that football around and they also spend time with the math homework. They do they do a, a lot so, of different margins. 
But but I'm just saying there's, it's very difficult to make the case from the way parents allocate their time and resources and kids allocate their time and resources that parents are very unhappy with the public school's totally emphasis agree. on math scores. Okay, right? I, to- I totally agree. So, but, but, but go back, go to India, and it's exactly the opposite. These kids are being coming out completely illiterate, completely innumerate. And what's been happening in India and most other countries is there's a massive proliferation of tutoring. And there's a massive proliferation of tutoring because the existing system, both public and private, by the way, but the parents even parents are just as likely or almost as likely to hire tutors if they have their kids in private schools as in public schools because they perceive at the margin that, look, if your kid isn't reading at all, you don't want to supplement the kid's education with some art classes. You need him to read. And so you're going to supplement his out-of-school experience with more reading help. And you, if, you know, if the math is going to be important to his academic success, you're going to supplement with math tutoring. So I think what we see in these other countries is at these super low levels of learning. So, so there's almost no – in my mind, there, it's very dangerous you know, making comparisons between what's going on in the U.S. or Finland and what's going on in India or Tanzania because at the margin – the, the value to additional learning is just amazingly high from the very low levels that it is, whereas that's not at all obvious in the U.S. case. Okay, right? so let me let me challenge no. that partially. <laughs> okay, let sure. me challenge it partially, and I agree with I agree with what you say, and I'm going to try to give an explanation, and you can then disagree okay. with both my explanation and and my, the conclusion I want to draw from it. So okay. I agree with you that about two things. One, I think the average American parent has a whole wide range of goals, and number two. That even for the academic goals, the American public school system in those affluent suburbs does a pretty good job. Yep. Uh, however, I would suggest that part of the reason that's true, maybe all of the reason that's true, is that those parents in those affluent suburbs can afford public schools, excuse me, private schools if they mm-hmm. choose to, and many do. Mm-hmm. Many, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they live in in neighborhoods with fabulous public schools, send their kids to private schools anyway for the reasons you're talking about partially. Mm-hmm. They want something else, mm-hmm. something different. But the other factor is that they have a choice, and so the yeah. school knows that, and the yeah. school has to respond. You suggested that that in these suburbs, it's it's parent driven. The yeah. parents have influence. Well, in exactly. a lot of America's schools, that isn't true, yeah. and as a result, their kids don't get either. They don't get the choir, and they don't get the learning and the reading. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> that's the tragedy, and it seems to me that the fundamental problem of our public school system. It's pretty healthy in some places, but the lack of effective competition is destroying now a third generation of American children. Again, my book isn't about American education. I'm not an expert on American education, but I'm broadly sympathetic with – we have a a social problem that is manifest itself in educational terms, but we need to come to grips with that it's a social problem and that – the in the affluent suburbs, the parents really do or control the schools in part because whatever bureaucratic systems there are in American schools, they grew out organically of very local, tight local control roots, which are still present when the parents can exercise that control and accountability. And that in the inner city schools, we have an entire we have a social problem that's manifesting itself in educational and other ways. And there we need. You know, I'm very sympathetic for their need for much more radical action. The more compl- complacency about that is not is completely unacceptable. But we have to acknowledge that it's 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 not a f- it, it's it's a social problem um, 
that has deep, you know, social and economic roots that interact with the education system. Uh, but you know, I, I'm very ner and and I I just don't know how to uh, that that don't know how to solve that. Yeah, well, <laughs> but no, I, I do alone. think lack of accountability and competition has has been an enormous part of the problem. When that isn't substituted by effective parent control, as it, as it has been and continues to be, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people go to the Bedford schools because the Bedford schools deliver, you know, pretty much a pretty good quality education. And I'm biased because my wife used to teach there, but they deliver pretty quality. They they actually deliver a reasonable quality education uh, and one that you know, parents organically control, and that's great. And that, by the way, is completely, completely absent from the spider systems. You know, the United States has always been much more of a starfish system, and the starfish system uh, has enormous strengths, and I think those enormous strengths have led America to be a leader in education in many ways. And one of the examples I use in my book is, you know, if there's a, a, a scaled example of a starfish education system, it's American universities, and it's just unbelievable from the data the extent to which America dominates quality universities. It's just unbelievable compared to Europe, which has always took the same approach to universities that other countries want to take to their basic education. And you see the consequences of it is that, you know, America's universities, you know, in the book, I have numbers of, you know, the top 200 universities in the world, what fraction of them are in Anglo countries. And it's just way disproportionate to their population size and even wealth because Europe, which is equally sized and equally wealthy, continental Europe, just has nowhere near. Um, and, it, and, it's, and, it, and it's the result of a starfish system in my view. Yeah, which uh, a point that Milton Friedman also liked to make. I'll just add that. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to read another quote okay. from the book because um, this will be our a segue to our conclusion, which is uh, – okay. here's what you say. One charge that could rightly be leveled at this book so far is that the general tenor is pessimistic. Chapter 1 says learning levels are low. Chapter 2 tells us more years of schooling won't solve the learning problem. Chapter 3 argues just more inputs alone will provide a little help, not a lot. Chapter 4 suggests more of the same can actually block better learning. Chapter 5 argues that the systems we have were built for ideological socialization in the 19th and 20th centuries and not for developing student capabilities to meet 21st century needs. And now I want to talk about creating a positive dynamic of progress. So I'm now going to challenge – end of quote. I'm now going to challenge you <laughs> at the end yes. of our conversation. What's the – give me something cheerful. Uh, your book is – I wouldn't call it pessimistic. I'd call it realistic. And I think we need yeah. a lot more of realism and a lot less fantasy about what's going on and what we're measuring and what its real impact is. Right. But give me something cheerful. Well, for – for one thing, I think among education experts, um, and this I mean kind of the gl global people who talk about education and policy, I think my book is not necessarily influential but reflective of a massive shift on this point in the last 10 years. So, you know, 10 years ago when I was – or even seven years ago when I wrote a papers about – maybe having a millennium learning goal instead of a millennium schooling goal, it kind of disappeared without a trace. Now, every discussion in every developmental organization is at least rhetorically focused on learning. So, so the extent to which the schooling agenda ignored the learning agenda has just turned on a dime 
in just an amazing way in the last five years. So, you know, currently the development community is discussing the future goals after the MDGs, and I point out that the MDGs were an exclusive Millennium Development the Millennium Development Goals, uh, which were kind of a broad UN formulation of what the development objectives were. In all of the discussions now, it's just taken for granted that the shift has to be towards a massively more learning-oriented system. So I think that's a super positive thing because I think you need to have people first admit where they are, admit the depth of the problem, and re-articulate what our vision was. I mean, nobody ever really, you know, nobody ever really just had a a, 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 a sit number. Of, no one ever really, in my mind, had a schooling goal, right? No one ever really just said, my exclusive goal is the number of years one spends in institution, because as I point out, the only other institution we measure like that is prison. Right, time served is only a summary statistic in one other institution, and that's prison. And we don't want our schools to be prisons. We want our schools to be, you know, catapults into life. So I think this shift has happened massively. I think uh, my, you know, the book is on the cutting edge of this change. I, I don't know that it's, you know, I, I I would hesitate to claim that it's caused any of the change, but it's reflective of just a massive change that's going on. And I think that's an enormously optimistic thing because until you really articulate the goals, have the goals, measure the goals, there's no way you can reach them. Second, I think a number of the systems, and, and this sounds odd for asking for something pessimistic, but a number of the systems... I mean optimistic. Optimistic. I'm saying, yes. <laughs> it's When you ask me for something optimistic, this will sound odd, but in a odd way... Many of the spider systems are so broken that the that that the acknowledgement that they can't be fixed in spider ways is already there. So, you know, uh, in India, more than fifty percent of children in urban areas are already in private schools. Um, no vouchers from the government to speak of, or no increase in vouchers caused this. It was just the schools were so awful, and and income went up enough that um, parents just gave up on it. Um, now, what that means is no discussion of what the education system in India is going to look like in the future can just act as if what happens in the public schools is what happens in the schooling system. So I think that second dynamic has created a dynamic where educators are having to think systemically and not just in top-down ways because the reality is they have so lost control of their internal spider system controls and so much of it has gone into private schooling that you now have to really take it for granted. The third, I think, super optimistic thing is uh, in so many ways, parents are just way more taking responsibility and demanding accountability in general and in particular in this domain that I don't think we can – I think the spider systems uh, – in their lack of accountability are doomed. Uh, I think just the extent to which citizenry around the world are more engaged, more demanding, more insistent, uh, and the, the moves towards both democracy and deeper democracy and more transparent democracy, just night and day, which hopefully heads us back to a more uh, responsive system in which the bottom-up kind of Hayekian or competitive pressures get felt in one way or another. Uh, now, I, I think economists would be naive and and to to insist that this 
competitive pressure has to play itself out in terms of vouchers because these ideological issues are deep and serious and societies just aren't going to give up on them. But I do think there are lots of ways in which market-like pressures that unleash dynamics uh, can be molded into educational systems without necessarily um, going that way. Second, if we create a system that can create that kind of responsiveness, it can work. It, it is the preconditions for or it is a condition that's also conducive to moving to more market-like mechanisms anyway. So I, I think in that sense, I think we have passed the cusp uh, on a lot of this, and there's going to be a lot of progress, uh, a lot of uh, productive chaos, I think, in this field over the next five to ten years as people work out how we really respond to these incre- increased demands for learning out of our kind of increasingly archaic spider schooling-centered systems. One last question. You, you mentioned okay. just now, and it's it's in the book a little bit, the incredible profusion of private options yeah, sure. Not fancy, by the way. They're not the equivalent of private schools in the United no, States. No, this, is, this isn't in more Eatons and Andovers. Yeah, this, this is, is yeah. This is people teaching, um, right, in a one-room, right, rundown apartment. But it's where people. Right. It's better than what they're getting, right? And of course, how rundown the building is is a silly measure of an input, uh, right? But this is happening in India. It's happening in Africa. I want reflect for as we close on the role technology might play in in. Providing an end around of the of that corrupt spider system. So, wow, that's quite a question to throw in here here at the end. Um, well, I mention it because yeah, yeah, you talked about the the, the high quality of American education at the university yeah. level, and of course, a lot of yep. these classes being taught on the internet. A lot of the students are coming from all over the world, and they don't yeah. need to have their own university yeah. system. They can take ours. No, I, I I do discuss a little bit in the book, um, and so. <clears throat> And this, I, I want to be clear about this. What I want to discuss in the book is how you would create a system in which the right technologies emerge. So, as economists, I think we should be much more, <laughs> you know, much more stick to our strengths, which is thinking about yeah, systems that create the appropriate motivations for individuals. Should be agnostic about and, particular and more things. agnostic about particular techniques, which is the opposite of how most. I mean, most books about schooling have a solution in terms of a particularly desired form of pedagogy or something yep. or technology. And and I'm strictly throughout the book want to say, look, I want to create systems that allow lots of potential solutions to emerge and compete against each other rather than my proposing a solution. That said, um, I do mention the Clay Christensen has this idea of disruptive innovation, which is where you actually move to something that looks like lower quality, but then rebuild a higher quality on top of that. And the classic example, of course, is the PC, which in computing terms when it came out in 1980 was, you know, a garage hobbyist toy that no serious computer engineer would pay any attention to. And, you know, over the last, and all the firms that ignored the incipient disruptive innovation of the PC got themselves blown away by this, at the time, low quality alternative. So I do think technology is going to change the way classrooms are managed in ways that are going to look disruptive in the sense that they may appear to be de-skilling the classroom, but I think they'll, in the long run, they're going to, I think in the long run, there will be a disruptive innovation in the developing world that will rapidly accelerate the rate at which they can close on these higher levels of schooling. Um, in a, but it's, but when I hinted at this chaos, it's going to be very chaotic. It's going to be lots of people doing things that don't look like finished classrooms, but 
produce incredible gains and they're going to reconstitute a new way of doing education. I'm reasonably confident that's going to play out at least in significant parts of the world because they're just not going to close on us in the way that we did it. It's just too slow, requires too much resources. I mean, we may get to scores you know, that we have in the way that we did, but I don't think that's the way that anything like these lagging countries are going to do it when they do it. My guest today has been Lant Pritchett. His book is The Rebirth of Education. Lant, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.